Well, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the last four verses in the book of Philippians. Um, That's where we're going to spend our morning together. And so if you need to run and grab a Bible or open up esv.org in another tab on your computer, do that. Um, You're going to need God's word. Um, I have nothing for you. Uh, I have no great wisdom to bring. This is all I have. And, uh, And so we are going together to sit under God's word and to learn from him. Um, and that is the, the source of our authority and our truth and our hope this morning. So um, Philippians chapter 4, looking at verses 20 through 23. Um, and uh, boy, as, uh, as we look at these verses, um, I, I can't help but be struck of the contrast. Um, what an interesting week it has been for the church in Alberta. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, if you noticed, uh, if you heard um, the, the city of Calgary passed um, this bylaw um, against what they call conversion therapy. And now, um, as they talked about this publicly, uh, as it was kind of advertised and put out to the public, they, they talked about this as a, as a, uh, a law to to end this outdated and abusive and coercive tactics to try to change someone's sexual orientation. Um, there's talk of abuse and, and kind of veiled accusations of torture thrown in there and manipulation. And let's just be clear, if that's what we're talking about, I'm 100% with you, right? I have no time for manipulation and coercion and abuse. That's not what I'm about. That's not what God's word teaches. Um, I will, I will join the fight in that wholeheartedly. But listen to what this bylaw actually says. Uh, it defines um, conversion therapy in this way as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change, repress, or discourage a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression, or to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. So, Any practice, treatment, or service, that includes preaching, that includes pastoral counseling in in the privacy of an office, Um, any of that that would seek to discourage homosexual behavior or identity on any level, um, that would encourage someone to live in their God-given gender identity. And and so... um, By this law, even if someone were to come to me struggling with their faith, convinced in themselves that their sense of maybe homosexual attraction is sinful as God says it is and seeking to grow in holiness, um, it would be breaking this law to open up God's word and to encourage them from it. And the uh, recommended penalty for such a heinous crime is $10,000 fine and a year in prison. And, And so this is a reality today. Um, as our brothers uh, preach the word in Calgary, as our uh, sister churches gather um, to, to, to worship the name of the Lord, um, this is the threat that they're under. And, and though we in Olds are kind of outside of the jurisdiction of this bylaw, um, this same legislation is on the agenda for the federal government later this year. Um, it's coming. And uh, I've heard a few of you already uh, in our congregation have have reached out to me and said, this is hard. Um, I've lost friends over this. There's been division in our family over this. Um, This is painful, and it's just the beginning. It's not going away. Uh, I I shared with my small group um, this this last week. I've often 
had that conversation and, and sometimes just jokingly about uh, the possibility of going to jail for preaching the gospel. And, uh, and yet this Monday when this bill was passed, that's the first time I really felt the, the weight uh, of, a, of a tangible threat of, of missing a year of my kids' lives um, because of what I teach, because of what I believe. Um, I talked about this with my wife um, later that afternoon, reminded of, of John Bunyan. Uh, he spent 12 years in Bedford jail um, for preaching the gospel, um, leaving his wife to raise their four children on her own. Uh, and his sentence was only three months long. And he was told he could leave at any time he wanted um, under one condition that he would promise not to preach the gospel. And, and that was one promise that he simply could not make. Uh, what a price to pay. And if the time comes, would I be able to stand with that kind of resolve and at what cost to my family, at what cost to this church? And that question still weighs heavy on me. And yet my conviction and my calling are clear. I cannot condone what the Lord condemns. It's not for me to do. I cannot and I will not cease to preach in private and in public the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that, that calls all sinners, regardless of sexual orientation or anything else, to repent of sin, to come to Christ for forgiveness, and then to walk in that newness of life, transformed by grace, putting off the desires of the flesh and walking in holiness. And so, uh, as always, the timing of the Lord is impeccable. Um, because as I was reaching for confidence Monday, uh, Tuesday I sat down um, to begin to study for um, this week's message and, uh, and found Paul um, giving to the church in Philippi confidence, a promise of the victory of the gospel. Uh, he himself is writing from prison for his faith. He's right there. He's writing to a church that is under persecution and threat. And he holds out this great hope that, that no matter how dark it becomes in our country, in our world, how, how, how much it looks like evil has overcome, like the church is on the ropes and defeat is imminent and there's no point in resisting anymore, um, there will be victory. That's what I see in these last few verses of Philippians, the victory uh, of the glory of God in eternity, the victory of the growth of the church, and the victory of grace in us. Um, let me read these verses for us, and then I'll uh, unpack them and just show you um, where I'm seeing this. Um, so Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is Paul's conclusion to his letter. Uh, he's, he's wrapping up his letter to the Philippians. And uh, boy, this is kind of bittersweet, isn't it? I, I love finishing a book. I love uh, having journeyed all the way through verse by verse, and yet it kind of feels like saying goodbye to a friend. Um, this is a fairly standard greeting here uh, in many ways, um, but it doesn't mean it's without significance. The Holy Spirit does not waste ink. 
And, uh, and so the first thing I think we see here in verse 20 uh, is the victory of the glory of God. It's the victory of the glory of God. He says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, um, most of your Bibles, like mine, probably group that verse with the verses above, the verses about generosity and not with the, the greeting below. And, uh, and that's not wrong. Um, they're certainly connected. Our, our generosity flows out of that confidence of the Lord's provision for us as our Father and His goodness to us in that way. Um, he loves us. He cares for us. And uh, and it's not just to our benefit, right? That's Our generosity is about the glory of God. It's about praising His name. And so that's absolutely true. It fits there. Um, but this verse doesn't just apply to that section on generosity. It applies to the whole book. Every word that he's written from his introduction all the way through has been driving toward this final summary. It all culminates right here to God be the glory. And there's a, there's a threefold meaning and, and purpose to this, to this statement here. Um, first, this is just Paul's overflow of worship. It's his personal worship. He constantly does this as he writes. He, he unpacks some great truth or he lays out the truth of the gospel and then he just kind of breaks out into song. That's what this is. He's just excited. It's worship. His theology is building up in him and heating up to the point of boiling over. He can't hold it inside anymore. And, and, and so it should be. It's not enough to simply know who the Lord is, to know all kinds of facts about him. Um, Satan knows the truth, right? Think about this. Satan has better theology than you do. I promise you. The question is not, do you know God? The question is, do you, from the heart, rejoice in the Lord? Paul does. This, this is it. This is his statement of, of joy in the Lord. But there's another layer to it. The second purpose, I think, behind this statement, it's not only his personal worship, but it's also a, a call to us to worship. It's a call for us to, to join him. He, he's saying, Take what I've written, read it, obey it, live this, do it all for the glory of God. Join me in the glory of God. Live your life not by your own wisdom, not according to your own way, your own purpose, your own standards, but for the glory of God. And so it's this song of worship, and it's a call for us to, to join in worship. But then thirdly, I think it's also an affirmation of future worship. He ends with that word, Amen. Uh, it's a, a Greek word that simply means, let it be so, or this is true, or this is firmly established. It's a statement of the final victory of the glory of God. This will happen forever and ever. And so governments will come and go. False religions and lies in our world will ebb and flow um, in this world, we will have trouble. That's a promise from Jesus. 2 Timothy 3 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the world we live in. But in the end, when it's all said and done and the dust is settled on this short existence of this broken and blinded world, 
to God will go the glory forever and ever. He will be worshipped and exalted above all things and for all time. That's God's ultimate purpose in all that he does. So much bad theology um, comes out of missing that truth, is corrected when we figure out, when we see in God's word that, that his purpose is the display of his glory. And he will succeed. He will do what he has set out to do. Paul already wrote about this back in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's, that's Jesus. God exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All glory in this world comes culminating together in Jesus and then from Jesus to God the Father. Do you ever wonder where this world is going? you ever feel lost and discouraged as we see the moral slide? As we see wicked people going from bad to worse? As we see just heart-wrenching, atrocious acts of racism that are then met with violent riots and chaos? Sometimes you watch the news and I just feel like I'm on one of those rides spinning and flipping and the fair and it's going faster and faster and spinning and flipping over and I'm starting to get sick and I'm about ready to yell, stop the ride, I want to get off, I'm done. But here's what we know for sure. This is where our, our confidence lies. When all this ends, when the ride finally stops and the baskets are left gently squeaking and swinging on their hinges, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will have victory in his glory. And not, not temporary victory. Not just a season of peace as we've seen at different times in this world to different extents. Not just a four-year term, but forever and ever. Literally, it says, into the ages of the ages. That's where we're going. That's where this is heading. And that, that brings us to that second purpose of this statement, that call to worship. Because part of God's glory Part of that great triumphant end to this world will be the eternal punishment of all those who oppose him. Right? All of those who, who devalue the glory of God by their lives, lived as though he were irrelevant, lived as if the things of this world are of greater significance and greater value than him, lived according to their own way and discarding his way will be part of the display of God's glory as the objects of his rightful wrath against their sin. His victory is seen in the defeat of all those who oppose him. Are you living right now for the glory of God? Does your life reflect that in, in real, visible, tangible ways? Are you pursuing him? Are you, you living this life for his glory? Now, we're not saved by a good life. We are saved by grace. But make no mistake, Romans 8.13, 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How do we know we're we're sons of God? How do we know we're his children destined for glory? We live by the Spirit of God. We put to death the deeds of the body. And if you continue on in the deeds of the flesh, you'll die. And so, if you live your life for yourself, for your glory, for the, for the good of your flesh and your desires, that does not speak well of a work of grace in you. But if by the Spirit of God, through faith in Christ, by the grace of God, you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Don't think this life doesn't matter. We are called to holiness. Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. To life today, lived to the glory of God, no, no matter what temptation, no matter what threat faces us. And we ought to live with, with confidence in that ultimate victory of the glory of God. Knowing that that all those who trust him, who are following him in, in direct contradiction, contradiction to the, the flow of this world will not be put to shame. We have hope in him as we, as we strive to, to live for his glory, knowing that his glory will be victorious. That's the first victory in this passage. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The second victory uh, is the victory of the growth of the church. It's the growth of the church. Let me read verses 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, in part, this is just such an endearing passage as we see Paul's heart um, for the church, his tenderness. Um, all throughout this letter, he's been writing with these plural verbs and nouns. It's, it's you, it's the church together. Now he switches and he very intentionally uses um, singular language. It's every saint, each and every one of you. He doesn't take time to name them, but no doubt he is fondly remembering um, their names, their faces, He's saying, every one of you as individuals are important to me. I remember you. I greet you specifically. And then uh, he says, the brothers are with me. His, his ministry companions that were working with him and supporting him also send their greetings. And then broader yet, all the saints greet you. The, the whole church here in Rome sends its, its warm welcome and greeting to the whole church there in Philippi. What's he doing? Well, he's, he's building their fellowship. He's fostering this idea of the, the love and the camaraderie and the partnership that they have as the church from across city lines and, and, and across the world. We remember you. We're, we're, we're standing with you. And partly, this serves to anchor their identity uh, as members of the church of Jesus Christ. This is, this is who you are. There are so many different ways that people define themselves today. Who are you? Just think about it. 
I hate making too much of Facebook, but it's a really interesting thing because that's the place. It's the, it's the blank slate where we get to put out what we want people to think about. Is we get to curate our own identity for others to see who are you. And, and there are so many different ways. I'm a hipster. I'm a gamer. I'm a truck guy. I, I'm, a, I'm a farmer. For the ladies, maybe it's more about I'm a, I'm a homeschooler, I'm a, a health food eater, I'm an essential oil user, I am pro-vaccine or I am anti-vaccine and this is who I am. And that's fine. Those things are fine. But far, far above and over those things ought to be our identity as children of God and part of his church. That's who we are. Do you live that way? Do we have that perspective? What defines you? What groups and gatherings and events are important to you? Do you see yourself first and foremost as as loved by God, redeemed by Christ, and joined into the family of the church? And then he throws in this last little phrase, uh, and this is where that, that swell of hope would have come totally unexpected to the, to the congregation there. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. <laughs> Say, what now? Who? Remember, Philippi is in Macedonia, but it's also a Roman colony. It's a, it's a significant Romanized city. And so it's filled with Roman citizens and Roman soldiers. There are Roman officials there. It's run by Roman law under Roman principles with Roman values. Polycarp um, was a disciple of um, the Apostle John, so a direct disciple of John, and he was one of the early martyrs of the church by the Romans. And uh, do you know what, what Polycarp was accused of? Do you know why they killed him? I wish you were all here. I'd love to hear some guesses. Um, he was charged with atheism. Atheism. That's why they burned him at the stake. You see, in Roman culture, um, it was okay to worship all kinds of different gods. That was fine. The problem was not that Polycarp worshipped Jesus. The problem was that Polycarp worshipped Jesus only. Every coin in Roman circulation had on it the inscription, Caesar is Lord. It was a common phrase throughout the Roman world for them to refer to Caesar, their Lord and Savior. And now these Christians, they talk about Jesus as Lord, Jesus as the only Lord. And so now, Paul is writing from the heart of Rome, himself in prison for his faith. And and he slides into this letter, this this little phrase, this simple greeting, a, a greeting especially from those believers in Caesar's own household, living right there in the belly of the beast. Paul had kind of hinted at this earlier, Philippians 1, 12 and 13, he said, I I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served for the the advance of the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment has been for Christ. Now he encourages them saying, hey, the church is growing. Under this oppression and violence and attack, the church is growing even into Caesar's household. 
Now, the household was bigger than just immediate family. It would have included um, an entourage of, of counselors and servants and guards. But, but the point is clear. The church is growing, and even the imperial palace uh, is not, uh, can't, can't escape it. It's been infiltrated by the gospel, and, and we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus promised, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing, nothing will stop the church of Jesus Christ. No Roman dictator, no angry mobs, no communist regimes or corrupt governments or anyone else. How many through the years of history have tried to stamp out the church of Jesus Christ? And every time she seems to be knocked down, she grows all the stronger. Every time you, you stomp on that fire, you send out sparks into the grass around. And she grows. Certainly not stronger in visible earthly ways like we might expect. The kingdom of Jesus is not an earthly kingdom. Um, he himself said to Pilate as he was on trial about to be sent to his death, he said, look, Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was of my, this world, my, my followers would be here. They would be fighting for me, but that's not what this kingdom is about. This is his kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's not a kingdom of political power and, and worldly influence. It's not a kingdom that, that stands and fights for its rights. It's a kingdom that lays down its life out of love. And so the influence of the church on culture, it will come and go. It will ebb and, and flow, and, and the church at times will be admired and, expected by, and, and accepted by culture, and other times it will be mocked and despised and attacked. And it's often hard to see uh, the scope of the war from the, from the middle of the battlefield, but the reality is this. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but then he went on to say, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've already secured the victory. It's already won. He's conquered. And he will reign supreme and we are his. Consider again the, the language of Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, for years I read that somehow thinking that the church was under attack but would not be destroyed. But that's not what the language says. It says that, not, not that the church is under attack, it's, it's the gates of hell that are under attack. It's the church progressing. And, and even at the very gates of hell, and those gates will not stand. They will be overcome. The church of Jesus Christ never shrinks. The church of Jesus Christ will be victorious. And so though we, like Jesus, will be despised and rejected by men, Romans 10, 11 promises whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The church will be victorious. And so we have confidence. We have confidence in the, in the victory of the glory of God. We have confidence in the victory of the growth of the church. And then finally, we have confidence of God's grace in us, the victory of grace in us. Um, Paul's 
Final words in this letter to the Philippians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's a common, the, the common greeting in Paul's day um, was strength to you, eroso. That's, that's was, that was seen as uh, a, a proper greeting. Strength be with you. And, and Paul says, no, 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 no. You don't need strength. You don't need human strength. You need grace. Grace be with you. It's interesting if you remember back to our first sermon in the book of Philippians, all the way back to to chapter 1, verse 2. That's exactly where this letter started. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins with grace and he ends with grace. In fact, of the 13 letters written by Paul in our New Testament, every single one of them, without exception, begins with grace to you and ends with grace with you. It's all about grace. Grace, God's grace toward us, his his generous, loving kindness working in us. And that's, it's as though Paul starts his letters saying, here, this, this letter is grace to you. This, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. It's grace. Take it. And then in the end, he says, receive this. It's, it's grace to you. It's, it's God's goodness and kindness and strength for your life. Take it with you. Live in this grace. This took a few minutes um, earlier this week, to just peruse through Scripture and just pull out the the obvious mentions of the effects of grace on us as believers. The word grace simply means God's unmerited favor. It's His loving kindness toward us. But listen to this list of what God's grace does for us and to us and in us. We are called by grace We are awakened by grace. We believe by grace. We are saved by grace and justified by grace. We are built up by grace, sanctified, made holy by grace. We're strengthened by grace and empowered by grace. We stand in grace, are ruled by grace, given spiritual gifts by grace. We're appointed to serve by grace. We have confidence before the throne of God by grace. We have hope of an eternal inheritance by grace and are kept for that inheritance in grace. And so we boast in grace. And that's just a a, a pared down list of the obvious mentions of grace. The, The reality is it's weaved through every single page. Everything. Our salvation from from start to finish, our lives from from eternity past to eternity future are ruled by grace. It's His grace flowing to us. So here's the point. That grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that wonderful, powerful, unstoppable grace, at work in your spirit, in your spirit. That's victory. Notice back in in verses 21 and and 22, I kind of breezed over it. Maybe some of you are wondering, see if you're going to comment on this. What does he call them? Every saint in Christ Jesus. The saints greet you. 
This is Paul's favorite term for believers, and it's been hijacked and used in all kinds of misrepresented ways. This is what it means. It means the holy ones, those who are set apart to God. If you've trusted in Christ, if you're a recipient of his grace, you are a saint. That is what you are today, not what you one day will be. It's what you are today. You are God's holy one set aside for him. Once a wretched sinner, but now washed, cleansed, set apart, sacred and holy in Christ by grace. Now maybe, and rightfully so, your greatest fear is not in the world around us. Your greatest fear is not the the pressure of of things outside, but rather it is about the, the sin and the weakness that you see inside yourself. You've battled against sin and often feel like you're on the losing end. You have struggled with weakness and fear, with depression and and hopelessness, uh, or just as deadly with that self-confident pride that that rears its head and, and leads us far from Christ. You feel the the truth of that old hymn prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But if you know this grace, if there is true evidence of that grace at work in you, it brings us back to Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. In the grace of God, with your spirit, we have confidence, confidence of God's ultimate victory. Not not just in, in eternity, not just in the world, but in us, individually, in our personal lives. Stop and remember, this was never about you. This was not your doing from the beginning. It was not that that you decided by by your strength to to get yourself right with God. But rather, Ephesians 1.4 tells us he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This, This started in eternity past by God's decree. And Isaiah 4, sorry, Isaiah 46. 9 and 10, God says this, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. God doesn't fail. Not a single time has God set out to do something and failed. His grace is not weak. He is mighty to save. He'll accomplish all that he sets out to do. And so Jesus so confidently declares, John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, this is God's will who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It will be accomplished. Listen to this great hope, the power of the grace of Christ in us, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. Not you will do it. Not you're strong enough. Not you're faithful. He is faithful. He will do it. That's the power of the grace of our God working in us. So does that mean I'm off the hook? My my ongoing sin is irrelevant then? It doesn't matter? I, I I can put down that Bible I don't have to set my alarm. I don't have to, to battle for, for prayer in the morning. I can just kind of relax in this fight against sin. In the words of Paul, by no means. No, absolutely not. It's the exact opposite. Rather, because we have this hope, because we have this confidence of the grace of God in us to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to strengthen us and empower us, because we have assurance of that final victory and knowing that he will be faithful to complete it, fight the fight of faith all the more. All the more resolve than ever. Be ruthless with your sin, confessing it to God, confessing it to, to one another that we might be healed. Give no opportunity to the flesh. Do nothing uh, that is according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit, constantly renewing our minds by the Word of God and clinging to Him in prayer. And do it with this this confidence, this passion and, and hope, maybe like never before, knowing that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with your spirit. That He is faithful that he will surely do it. That's the hope that we have. That's the confidence that we have, that there will in the end be victory. Victory of the glory of God in eternity, victory of the growth of the church in this world, and victory of the grace of God in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and in awe of the wonder of your name, of the the glory uh, of your name. Lord, we are so easily shaken. We look at the the world around us. We look at the the attacks against the church. We look at the sin in our own hearts. And and God, we we drop our eyes and we look at uh, our, our world and our lives from an earthly perspective and we're discouraged. Lift our eyes, Father. Help us to to stand with Paul and declare in hope to to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That we would live our lives in confidence. That we would stand tall against any persecution, against any trial, against any temptation. That we would fight the fight of faith with confidence knowing that you are at work, that you will be victorious, and that all those who trust in you will not be put to shame, that we will one day stand to the glory of your name, that we, as the church, will will joyfully bend the knee to Jesus Christ, 
that he will be exalted to the glory of God the Father. Lord, um, give us that confidence. Be at work in our lives that we would be transformed by the knowledge uh, of your victory and the confidence in it. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.